go through it again and say, how does this text apply to us in the 21st century? So the message is the same. It's not two different messages, but there is an application for people in the first century, and then there's an application for those of us who live these 2,000 years later. When I was uh, entering my second year of college at uh, Judson College in Elgin, Illinois, the basketball uh, program had recruited some new players who were really good. And uh, in the first few days of school, there were a few of us at the gym who were playing a game of pickup basketball. And uh, one of these new guys was playing with us. He was really good. Now, also playing with us was our assistant coach. Our assistant coach had only been out of college for two years, and so he looked young, and he had kind of a baby face anyway, so he looked like he was a student. And this new recruit did not realize that uh, he was playing against the assistant coach. And this new recruit got belligerent and was being sassy with the assistant coach. He just thought that he was another student, and he was, he was dealing out some disrespect. And, uh, and then I'm sure that he was quite surprised when later on he finds out, hey, this is one of the two guys who is going to determine whether or not I'm going to play on this team. My, a guy that I thought was my peer that I could uh, disrespect actually turns out to be my judge who is going to determine whether or not I play. We see that happening in uh, the gospel that is proclaimed in this passage of Scripture. Uh, Jesus had been disrespected. Jesus uh, had been persecuted. And ultimately, Jesus had been killed by the people who had lived in Jerusalem. Jesus had told them ahead of time that uh, it was inappropriate for any prophet to die outside of Jerusalem, and so he knew that he was going to be killed by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. But when Jerusalem headed up the efforts of Judaism to kill the very Son of God, that was the last straw in God's uh, very, very patient endurance with the children of Israel that had lasted through thousands of years. And uh, as I have told you before, I think that the, the book of Revelation is about how God divorces Israel and marries the church. He divorces old Jerusalem and he marries new Jerusalem. And so he, there is a new bride and this bride consists of the people who believe in Jesus Christ and only those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so an entire book of the New Testament is devoted to this very important closing down of an old world and opening up of a new world. So let's make our way through this chapter and uh, see how, what, this, what was happening in the first century, how this message of Revelation 14 applied to people who lived 2,000 years ago, and then we'll go through this text again and see how it applies to us who live in the 21st century. Verse, we went through uh, verses 1 through 5 last week, so let's pick it up with verse 6. 
Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I believe that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus made, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 24, from which I will read right now. It says in Matthew 24, verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so, as I've explained to you before, the the changing of the covenants was like the death of an old world. Here it is described as the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and, uh, and the birth of a new world. And verse 30, in Matthew, I'm reading from Matthew 24, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, which I believe is better translated, then will appear the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven. And I think that, that sign is that Jesus has imbued with authority to execute judgment, which he does execute on the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, of course, Jerusalem was the, uh, the symbolic head of all Judaism. And uh, so the sign that Jesus Christ has been exalted to heaven is that he now pours out his wrath as the judge against those people who rejected him and who crucified him. Then all the tribes of the earth, or all the tribes of the land, will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem in the first century. Now let me just say here that I I need to say every few weeks, I do believe that there is going to be a second coming of Christ at the end of time, that Jesus is going to return in great glory, but that what is being described here is what took place when when Jesus returned in judgment upon uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. And so I think that's the coming. As Jesus will say in just a few minutes, it's going to happen within the, words of, within the lives of people who are standing here listening to me. So obviously none of those people are alive today, 2,000 years later, This is the coming of the Son of Man that happened within the lifetime of those who were listening to him. And it says, now this is the part that bears on what I've just read, with an angel proclaiming an eternal gospel. Jesus says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And uh, so now when we read in the book of Revelation that an angel is in midair, and he is proclaiming an eternal gospel to every nation and tribe and language and people. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Now, why is it an angel? And uh, I ask you to recall something that I said several months ago. The, the letters to the churches of uh, the seven churches were said, to the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this, and so on. And I explained to you then that the word angel does not necessarily mean a non-human uh, heavenly being. 
as we usually use the word to think, think of someone other than humans, a non-human heavenly being. Uh, but instead, the word just means messenger. So, for example, it seems to me like it would be very impractical for God to tell John, hey, why don't you send a letter to a non-human heavenly being? But it does make sense if he's saying, send this letter to the, the pastor who is the messenger of the church of Ephesus and the messenger of the church of Smyrna and so on. And so it may be that this is just a symbolic reference, just saying that there was a messenger or that he, he represents the force of evangelists going out to the known world. And uh, we may say, well, look, the gospel has not gone out to the known world even now. There are unreached people groups all over the world, so the gospel has not reached every creature. There are at least two places in the New Testament where in the New Testament it says that it has. So Paul in the book of Colossians says that he's proclaiming the gospel that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And I think that what we are to understand by Paul's words and what we're to understand by this is to say that the gospel was no longer confined to the one people group of Israel, that it had spread out to other, other nations. And uh, not, not that the Mayans were hearing the gospel and that the, an angel came and preached the gospel to the Mayans or to the Inca Indians in the Americas, but that in the known world, the gospel had gone out. I think the main emphasis is that it's no longer confined exclusively to the land of Israel. Uh, so now an, an eternal gospel, a gospel goes out, and, uh, and we'll come back in just a few minutes and look at the content of this gospel. But this is part of the prediction that Jesus made that the gospel would go out in, in connection with the destruction of the old world of the old covenant. And so not only would the gospel go out, but notice in, in verse 8 that a, another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, a few chapters earlier, we, uh, in chapter 11, we saw two witnesses. In fact, let me have you turn back to Revelation chapter 11. And... Uh, these two witnesses uh, are killed, and it says in verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So we all know that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is considered now no longer the holy dwelling place of God, but it is analogous with Sodom and with Egypt. Well, now there are, Sodom and Egypt were both two places, uh, both a place where God's people had been delivered. So Lot, Abraham's nephew, was living in Sodom. God sent angels to bring Lot out, and then judgment fell. And so Sodom is a place from which God's people, have, a, a very sinful place, from which God's people were delivered. Egypt also, a very sinful place from which God's people were delivered. And it's used in chapter 11 to refer to Jerusalem. Sodom and Egypt, symbolically, that where their Lord was crucified. It's called symbolically. Well, 
there was another great exodus that took place when the people of Israel returned from Babylonian captivity. And so you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah and how that uh, the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, and, uh, and, and the people were allowed to go back to the land. And so you might think of it as a second exodus or a third one if, you, if we're going to count Sodom. And so when it here says that Babylon is fallen, I think that th- we're meant to understand this is Jerusalem. This is a, a corrupt religious system from which the people of God are being delivered. And uh, so I think that's what it meant to people in the first century. Jerusalem had enormous influence. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in the book of Revelation is usually referring to false religious practices. And uh, so uh, the, the religion that... Jerusalem was propagating, even though it had started with the pure Word of God, was having a bad influence on the, the, the nations around her, and uh, they were drinking the wine of her, the passion of her sexual immorality. So the first angel proclaims a gospel, the second angel says Jerusalem is going to be judged, and now the third, the, the third angel, verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now we'll look at this uh, uh, paragraph a little more carefully when I start to ask, what, how, how is this message applied to us? For now, let's just see that what it meant to people who were living at a time when Jerusalem had not yet fallen and when the religious leadership in Jerusalem of Judaism, the high priests and so on, were cooperating with Rome for the preservation of the little, the little thing that they had going The Lord is here saying to them, you must not participate in that. As I have mentioned before, I don't think that the mark of the beast is literally some kind of tattoo or a mark that they got on their head or that they got on their hand. But instead it's saying, you must not think the way that they think. You must not capitulate to the false teaching that they're bringing. You mustn't act in accordance with the false teaching that they're bringing. When they tell you that they'll let you live if you swear that if you swear allegiance to the Roman Empire and, and burn incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord, don't do that. They'll let you live if you do that. But when you do that, you are receiving their way of thinking. You are cooperating with their way of acting. Don't do that. You're abandoning the Lord if you do that. And so to the first century, I think that's what it meant to them. This would be something that would require endurance. And verse 12 recognizes that. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's who the saints are. They keep the commandments of God. And most any Old Testament uh, professor of Judaism would say, well, I do that. But what about this next? Their faith in Jesus. This is what earmarks the people of God from then on.
Now, there were going to be a lot of people who were killed. Not all of the Christians escaped from Jerusalem and went to Pella. There were Christians who were martyred, killed by the Jews, and and who were killed by the Roman Empire. Uh, Nero, who I believe is the beast, Nero uh, killed, slaughtered mercilessly Christians and treated them most brutally, uh, well-deserving the name of the beast. And uh, so there are people who are going to be killed, but... Verse 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. These words of comfort that are given to people who are dying for the Lord Jesus Christ make sense only if there is a life after this life. If this life is the only life that there is, then hey, let's cooperate with, uh, let's cooperate with Whatever corrupt practice will help us to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Uh, But if there is a life after this life, then that drastically alters uh, who we cooperate with and what we are going to cling to and the way that we think about our lives in a context of eternity. So I think that's what it meant to first century believers. Now let's look at the harvest that takes place that's described at the end of verse 14, still thinking about how it applies to first century believers. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, almost without fail in the Bible, when you read that there's someone who looks like the, a son of man, it is Jesus. This is, this is a, a messianic title that is given to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Taken from the book of Daniel, then I saw one like a son of man, and an eternal kingdom was given to him. So the son of man here on the cloud is Jesus. In the Bible, clouds almost always refer to judgment. But judgment is not always bad. You know, judgment is good. If you're the one who has been wronged, and judgment is executed against your enemies, then judgment is proving to be a a happy thing for you. And so I think that in this paragraph, we are seeing a a happy harvest of judgment from the Lord. Yes, there are saints who are going to be killed, but they are going to be harvested by the Lord and taken to heaven. So in verse 15, another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. I think that this describes a harvesting of God's saints, that they are gathered into, they're gathered into heaven. I think that the harvest that is described beginning in verse 17 is a harvest of the wicked. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Uh, 
I don't think that there was a literal river of blood that flowed from the Jews who were slaughtered when, when Rome fell. But metaphorically, it was a river of blood. Why 1,600 stadia? 1,600 stadia is almost exactly the length of the promised land from Dan to Beersheba. So from north to south, it's just about 1,600 stadia, which is about 200 miles. I don't know if you've ever thought about how small the land of Israel is. It's really, it's really quite tiny. It's not as big as Kentucky. And, uh, but so, but the, land, the land was imbued with the blood that flowed from those who were being judged for their disobedience, for their rebellion against the Lord, for their killing the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 63, and we'll see what I think is the, uh, the foundation for this, this treading out of the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Often throughout the Bible, the vine of, of grapevine is symbolic of, of Israel. There are several times in the Bible when the Lord tells a little story about how that he planted a vine and and it grew and it prospered and he protected it from the boars of the forest and so on. But that the vine proved unfaithful. And uh, Jesus also told a parable about a vineyard <coughs> owner who, who uh, lent out his vineyard to renters. And when it was time to reap the harvest, the renters rejected those who were sent and finally killed the owner's son. So many times in the Bible... The vine refers to Israel. And uh, so I do think it refers to Israel here, but not spiritual Israel, not good Israel, but Israel that is being judged by the Lord. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For, in the day, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come, or the year of my redeemed had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. In fact, as high as the horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is part of the gospel. One of my favorite movies is uh, The Patriot. So The Patriot tells the story about a man who had fought in some of the colonial wars, but he had become a decided pacifist. He really did not want to participate in any more wars. And so when the 13 colonies declared independence from Britain and it became obvious that 
the colonists were going to have to fight Britain, this man uh, decided that he was not going to participate. And uh, he, he stuck by his pacifist views until one day the British came to his house and they shot one of his sons and were preparing to, uh, to kill unjustly another one of his sons. And then the British rode off with, uh, with uh, the son that was going to be tried and hanged. They rode off with him being led from a wagon with his, uh, with his hands tied. And so this man, who had been a pacifist, runs into his burning house and says, and he grabs several rifles, and he says to his young sons, come with me. And uh, they go, and they set an ambush, and they, they uh, shoot the British, and they rescue their brother. But in the process, the man who had been a pacifist begins uh, killing people with a hatchet. And uh, so he, he kills several of the bad guys with the hatchet. And, and when he is finished and when all the bad guys have either been killed or they have been uh, run away, then the uh, movie producer has us see the face of his sons in shock. They're aghast at something that they're seeing. And what they're seeing is their dad coming up out of having just killed someone with a hatchet, and he is just drenched in blood. He is covered over with blood, blood on his face and on his hands. And they're looking at him like, who is this? Who is this? But at the same time, surely thinking, I'm glad he's my dad. I'm glad I've got somebody like that on my side who is going to stand up for our family. Well, I think that's the, that's the gist of what we have in this chapter. What we have is, is not Jesus, the good shepherd, with sheep around him and, and holding a sheep in his arm, walking peacefully down a path. What we have is Jesus, the shepherd, beating the fire out of a lion that attacked his flock. We have, we have Jesus, the great conqueror. We have Jesus, the Lord who is a warrior. And he is wreaking vengeance upon his enemies. He did it in the first century. And he will do it again. In recent years, I have seen a, uh, a number of portraits. And I know that the artists mean well. But they show Jesus with his head leaned back and he's just laughing a big hearty laugh. And this is the kind of Jesus that, uh, that our, our modern culture wants to have. We don't read one time in the Bible that Jesus ever laughed, but I'm sure that he did. And I don't think that there's anything more wrong with showing Jesus laughing than there is in showing Jesus any other way. I don't think you should have pictures of Jesus at all. But... Uh, but I don't think I've ever seen, I've been to a lot of art galleries, and I don't think I've ever seen the Jesus of Revelation 14 depicted in any paintings. Jesus, with his garments dyed red, and uh, watching the torment of those who are being tormented in his presence. There's some things in this chapter that are, are a little unsettling. 
This is, this is one of the tests of are we going to take Jesus as our prophet or are we, just going, are we going to take Jesus as our prophet and take this into our understanding of who Jesus is or are we going to just insist that Jesus is only always nice, kind, merciful, walking along peaceful paths with sheep looking lovingly up at him? This is a picture of Jesus that is really who Jesus is. It's not all that He is. He is Jesus gentle and lowly. But He's also Jesus mighty. Jesus powerful. Jesus a warrior. Jesus bringing punishment. Jesus with blood so thoroughly saturated into His garments that He looks like He has been treading a wine press and the blood of the grapes has spattered all over Him. And we need to learn to admire Jesus for this. Now, it's impossible to admire Jesus for this if you think that you're going to be one of the ones who's thrown in the wine press and trampled by his feet. But if you're one of the ones who is seeing the enemies of God punished by the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to learn. We need to learn that we will be content and we will worship the Lord for that. So let's go over this chapter again. And see what it means for those of us who are alive now. And first of all, we have what may seem to be a rather unusual description of the gospel. Look at what it says there in verse 7. We, see, we hear the angel proclaiming the gospel. This is an eternal gospel. It's already been, already been announced as what that is. And look at what he says. Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Where is the talk about Jesus dying on the cross for sinners? Where is the part of the gospel about his being buried and raised again from the dead on the third day? We have a tendency to limit our idea of the gospel to those first three or four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That all the gospel is, is just a, a series of soteriological or salvific facts about what Jesus did to save sinners. But according to the Bible, part of the gospel is also the judgment that he's going to bring against his enemies. It's not good news to his enemies, but it is good news to those who are his friends. Notice the elements of the gospel that is, as it is proclaimed here. The first thing is fear God. Now, the sort of things that I've been talking about ought to help us to cultivate a fear for God. Usually, when we hear preachers talk about fearing God, the very first thing that they do is get fear down on the ground and take a pair of pliers and pull all of its fangs out. So that fear just ends up being something like, be nice and respectful. That's not fear. Fear, at its most fundamental level, is an uncomfortable emotion that you feel in the presence of someone who has the power to hurt you, and you think he might. Well, not all of that definition of fear is applicable to Christians. It is an emotion for us that we feel in the presence of someone who has the power to hurt us, but he's not going to. But we're still not going to pull his ears and tail. You know, they're, they're big dogs. I'm so glad that they're friendly. But I don't necessarily just want to reach across the fence and pet them. 
I have a respect. I'm glad that you're not going to bite me, but I still am going to treat you with respect. During the days when I was uh, riding a motorcycle, somebody told me early on in my motorcycle career, every time you get on this thing, you need to say, this is trying to kill me. You need to have a respect for this machine. And of course, that's true not just for motorcycles, that's true for cars as well. You have a respect for the power that is there. You know, uh, maybe you've gone to the fair and you've seen some of those great big Percheron horses, 15, 1,600 pounds, or maybe you've seen Belgian shires, or maybe you've seen pictures of uh, the uh, uh, Clydesdales, you know, great big horses. You have to reach up to touch their back. And you think, man, am I going to get on this thing's back and ride it? This thing weighs 2,000 pounds. If I get up there, I guarantee you one thing, I'm going to be nice to it. I mean, theoretically, I'm going to show him who's boss, but uh, if he decides that I'm not the boss, he's got, he's got quite a bit of weight to throw around. When we fear God, it means that we always have a healthy respect. Don't ever get the idea that God is your equal or that God is your, your buddy. He has called us friends, but that is an incredible step of grace towards us. And uh, that doesn't mean that we have any right to lessen our respect for Him. He is our Father, but He is Abba Father. I, <clears throat> some of you have relatives uh, or, or friends of the family that are very dear to you, and you don't want to call him Mr. Smith, you, but you also don't want to call him Tom. And so you call him Mr. Tom. Some of you southern people do that. You call him Mr. Tom. That's a way of showing respect. I realize that we're, we're family friends, but I know that you're not one of my buds. And I think that's the way it is with Abba Father. He is our Father, but he's, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of just like especially leading in prayer and saying, Daddy. I just think that's inappropriate. Uh, I, I think that it's got to at least be Mr. Daddy. <laughs> you know, it's... There, there needs to be some respect. I realize that you're, you, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways above my ways and your thoughts above my thoughts. And it is appropriate for Christians. It's part of the gospel to have an ongoing fear of the Lord. So the gospel, the first element of the gospel is fear God. And the second thing is then give Him glory. Fear God and give Him glory. Now, at the very least, you've got to recognize that you're not the one who deserves the glory. So the Lord may have given you gifts and may have given you opportunities, and I I hope that people recognize and appreciate the gifts and opportunities that you have. And, uh, And when people say something appreciative to you about a job that you have done well, I don't think you always have to say, to God be the glory, but I think the thought ought always be into your mind. Thank you, Lord, that it was a blessing to this person. Often, uh, if someone says something favorable to me on the way out, and I, I appreciate that, I appreciate positive feedback, I really do. I'm not minimizing how that's an encouragement to me and encouragement to others. But, you know, often someone will say something to me and I'll say, praise the Lord. I don't want to go into a great big dissertation about how actually it's God who's given me whatever gifts I have and so be sure to give him thanks and so on. Just, just a simple praise the Lord. But even if I just say thank you, or if you just say thank you, we need to be thinking, thank you, Lord.
Thank you, Lord. There's a story in the book of Acts about Herod, one of those very bad men in a series of Herods, who uh, gave a speech one time, and people were saying, oh, this is the voice of a God and not the voice of a man. And Herod said, well, basically, you're right. You know, yeah, yeah, it's great. And he just let it all soak in. And the Bible says that the Lord struck him because he never gave glory to God. And his bowels fell out. Wow, that would be a rough way to die. And um, so we, we want to fear God and give Him glory. Don't take it for ourselves, but the good things that are done, we give God the glory for them. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Judgment is part of the gospel. It is that God is going to make all things right. And for the most part, we don't even need the Bible to tell us this There is an innate sense that we have that one day we will be judged by God and that people who do bad things are also going to be judged. And there are times when the hour of His judgment has come. The one specifically mentioned here, I think, is in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. But there is a future hour of His judgment that is coming when the heavens will melt and uh, when God will reveal His children and He will judge His enemies. The hour of His judgment has come. And then the fourth element of the gospel that is mentioned here is worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the streams of water. Worship him who made heaven and earth. was uh, appropriate. I don't know if Jim Bob had looked ahead of time at the text I was going to read today, but the, the, the special that the choir sang, all creation, all creation worships you, uh, that's partly true. That was a good song, but that's only partly true uh, because... While the trees of the field fulfill the purpose for which God created them, and that does bring God glory, they are not worshiping God in the same way that humans can. And so we humans have been given the voice of creation. And so when we see the beauty of the flowers and when we see the beauty of the trees, we ought to be offering up incense of praise to the Lord. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is part of the gospel. It helps me sometimes as I'm seeing something uh, to ask myself, what am I seeing here that my dog Belle is not seeing? So uh, she's pretty tuned in on two or three things. Squirrel in the trees will get her attention real quick. But uh, she never does give God glory for the beauty of that walnut tree where I sit or the fragrance of the walnuts or the memory of my grandmother gathering walnuts and... and, uh, getting out the meats so that she could sell them and have some money to buy something for Christmas. None of that goes through my dog's mind. When, when you're walking with your dog and you see a beautiful sunset or you, you're walking at night and you see the constellations or the beautiful full moon, your dog never says, hey, let's just sit and look at this for a while and, and appreciate the creation of God. But you can. And, and then not only are you superior to to your dog in that way, you're superior to non-believers. You are, you're capable of seeing things in heaven and earth that others are not capable of seeing. There is a, a hymn that contains the stanza, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Okay, softer than what? 
well, softer than he used to see it. Let me go. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with brighter colors shine. Since I know as now I know, I am his and he is mine. You may not know that hymn, but I bet you know this one. This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings. And round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In rustling grass, I hear Him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. And that's, that is consistent with this proclamation of the gospel. I am seeing God... I'm worshiping him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And so that's a way that this message is very applicable for us. But now let's turn our attention to another part of this chapter that is very applicable to us. And that's the judgment that God, that God executes. And it is a judgment that is friendly towards his friends. And it is a judgment that is harsh and final towards his enemies. Let's look at some of the elements of both of those aspects of judgment that appear in this text. So, uh, first of all, in verse 9 and following, we see a very terrible description of the judgment of God. Now, I've not said that this is hell. It's not described as hell, but it definitely is the sort of thing that's going to happen in hell. Let's see what it is. So, first of all, it is uh, the wine, verse 10, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, in the first century, uh, wine was commonly consumed. The, the uh, uh, Christians would consume wine as well as, as other people. Uh, there, there was no prohibition against drinking wine. But they would usually cut it with water. I, uh, some people will make the claim this was because the water was unsafe to drink. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think there's evidence for that. I think it's because wine is very expensive, and we're going to we're going to dilute the wine a little bit. We're still going to enjoy the refreshment of wine, but we're just not going to drink at full strength. But here is some wine that is not cut. It's not it's not adulterated. It's not diluted. It is full strength. And it's the wine of God's wrath, and it's poured full strength into the cup of his anger. I mean, how much more emphatic could it be that this is a really, this is a really bad drink that you don't want to have to drink? And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the Holy Let's, Let me hold off on that. Fire and sulfur. So some of the most horrible ways that we can think of to die. Why sulfur? In the King James Version that uses the old word for sulfur, which is brimstone. Why fire and brimstone? Why sulfur? Well, there are three major sources of sulfur. Sulfur is uh, an element that is still used. I suppose it's used in, in medicine because when I was a boy, you could, you could buy it at the drugstore. And I did buy it when I had a little chemistry set. And if you put it in a test tube and heat it up, it creates an unbelievable stink. Just really, really unbelievable stink. 
uh, one of my relatives had a, wall, a, a well that had sulfur in it. As soon as you walked in that house, you could just smell that sulfur water. It was really stinky. Uh, but one of, the main, one of the main sources of sulfur is it, it's around volcanic activity. And so uh, that liquid lava, that liquid lava that comes out, it's not all sulfur, but since sulfur is left behind, then it's, it's associated with that kind, of terrible, that kind of terrible heat. And so fire and brimstone, this is one of the descriptions of the judgment that God brings. So the wine of God's wrath, tormented with fire and brimstone, and then notice this, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now again, this is not the sort of thing that most people want to draw pictures of. Jesus watching people being tormented with fire and brimstone. Uh, And I don't want you to get the wrong idea that somehow God takes delight in seeing people suffer, but the judgment of God is very terrible, and He does take delight in seeing His judgment executed. C.H. Spurgeon says in at least one of his sermons, the damned in hell will will afford the bass notes for the great symphony of praise that will be sounded to God's glory throughout all eternity. Now, that may be difficult for us to understand, and I think that right now it should be. How could we possibly be happy in heaven if we know that our loved ones are suffering with fire and brimstone under the judgment of God? You should think that is an incongruent thought for me right now. But then you should also say, but then I'm going to have a mind that is made perfectly consistent with the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus here is not trying to snatch into the fire and brimstone and get people out. Instead, he is watching with a just satisfaction that justice is being done. One of my uncles was uh, part of the American troops who liberated the concentration camps in Germany. And uh, he wouldn't talk about it most of his life. He was in his mid-80s when he died, and for about the last five or ten years of his life, he would talk about it. And uh, he would get choked up, talk about what it was like to see these skeletal, emaciated Jews who were in these concentration camps. And he said that when we, uh, when we let them free from their cells, we gave them our guns so that they could kill their, uh, their prison guards. And that's sort of what is going on here. Uh, Jesus was mistreated, and now God has given the power of vengeance into the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his judgment against his enemies is they're tormented with fire and brimstone in his presence and in the presence of the holy angels. One of the most horrifying things about the judgment of God against his enemies is that it never ends. Verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the next description of God's judgment, but they have no rest day or night. There is a kind of torture that is sleep deprivation torture. We long for rest. We long for sleep. And when we are deprived of it long enough, we begin to hallucinate. And uh, I don't know exactly what the long-term effects are. I would suppose that you'll die pretty soon. But those damned in hell have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
These are the enemies of God as described in the first century. But this same judgment is against the enemies of God forever. That's the harsh judgment. Now we see some friendly judgment on behalf of his saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now this passage of Scripture, I think more than any other passage of Scripture, leads me to conclude that there was some change in heaven that took place with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the Old Covenant. You might think of it as there was a new room opened in heaven. Jesus had said to his disciples, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Uh, Prior to that, those who died in the Lord were in a happy place, but it's described as Abraham's bosom. And uh, there was a great gulf fixed between those who were in Abraham's bosom and those who were suffering in hell. Remember the story of the rich man and uh, the rich man who lifted up his eyes in torment and he sees Abraham and Lazarus afar off. There's a great gulf fixed between them. Uh, But now there is uh, something new apparently that happened with uh, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which included his judgment and shutting down of the old covenant. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And the Holy Spirit speaks up and seconds that. So the Holy Spirit, we don't I don't know of any other place in the Bible that we find him put in quotations. Here's what the Spirit says. Uh, We have the Spirit and the bride say, come, and things like that. But here the Spirit says that they may rest from their labors. Oh, those who are damned in hell, they don't get any rest day or night. But those who are blessed by the judgment of the Lord on their behalf do rest from their labors. And then look at this. They get benefit, they get credit for the things that they have done in service to the Lord. Their deeds follow them. They're not saved because of their good deeds, but their good deeds come along and they are blessed with privileges and blessings that sometimes are even a surprise to them. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 that those who are said, you you fed me, you clothed me, you gave me to drink. They say, when did we do that? And Jesus says, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. And so, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, interestingly, I don't think that the primary reference of that statement in Scripture is to heaven. But I think it applies to heaven. I think it applies to the, the, the extension of the kingdom of God to the non-Jewish nations. And I think if you read it in its context, you'll agree with me. But I do think that it applies to heaven. That eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. Not everybody goes to heaven when they die. That seems to be the default position of in the United States of America now. Well, they're in a better place, we say, concerning people who lived a, a vicious life or an obviously unapologetic, sinful life. They're in a better place now. They're not in a better place now. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. When you die connected to Christ, then you don't suffer the punitive judgment of God. <clears throat> Instead, you enjoy the vindicating justice of God.
that shows that you were right to follow after Jesus. Well, I've gone longer than I usually do, and so we'll not sing a hymn of conclusion. Uh, We'll be dismissed in prayer. Uh, But let me say that if you have questions about whether or not you are ready to die in the Lord, I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you about that. I and the other elders will be standing at the back, but, uh, and we'll be greeting people and shaking hands, but if you want to say, hey, could one of you talk to me about how to be saved, we would welcome that opportunity. Jim Bob, will you dismiss us in prayer, please?